0: So here, we're going to start by talking about some of the basic biology behind viruses Um, and kind of what viruses and then vaccines are, and then later on we're going to talk a little bit about an important vaccine study that came out about 20 years ago. Um, But first, just what is a virus? Um, So a virus is an infectious disease, agent, agent, particle nasty little bug (laughs) (laughs) and so viruses are um different from things like bacteria they're generally smaller viruses are usually just a little packet of dna or rna that's wrapped in a protein shell and these little guys will infect a host Um, so say we have a virus that infects humans It'll get into our body, we can breathe it in, we can ingest it, um, pick it up from other people, off of surfaces, Um, and these virus particles will enter into a host cell and start to take over all of the host machinery to start making new little baby particles
1: um, that can then go on and infect lots of other parts of the body. Which isn't as cute as it sounds because when all of these, when these uh, hydrax cells are done making these viral particles, they're going to break open. The The viral particles are going to spread all around that area, but also the act of that cell busting open is going to cause an immune response to come in because that is not great. And so that's going to cause swelling, redness... Not good, and it's ultimately going to cause a big old chain reaction when all of these cells are having this activity happening. And poof, poof,
0: poof. Yeah, it's kind of violent when you think about it. I mean, the viruses get in there, and they take over, the, and they literally explode the cell. Like, and then they go on to do it to other cells. So if you ever caught a cold or had that bug that the doctor can't do anything for you because it's a virus... I mean, you know how this feels. I mean, it's awful. And part of that's your immune response and your body's trying to attack the virus and the virus is attacking back.
1: and Yeah, it's nasty because the virus's whole purpose of existence is to reproduce. The virus is not... Um, well, we're not really sure. There's a big debate in the field as to whether or not viruses are alive. What do you think, Jackie, as our resident virus, virus expert? <laughs> so it's not even just in the
0: field. It's in my own household. <laughs> we have this debate. Um, technically, I believe they say that viruses are not living. My husband thinks otherwise. The reason why they don't classify viruses as living is because for a small span of time, when it first enters a host cell the virus will actually cease to exist because it will open up that protein shell and spill its um, nucleic acid, its DNA, out into the cell body so it can get to work. And for that length of time, it doesn't exist. And because it drops down to that zero existence line, um, they say it, it doesn't meet the definition of what we call living. What's interesting, though, is that I don't think Even though we say they're not living, it shouldn't mean that viruses aren't really spectacular in the things that they're able to do. Especially given how small they are and the fact that they are not considered living, they really are very powerful agents.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, everyone listening to this knows how horrible it feels when you have the flu and you can't keep food down or stop your nose from running when your whole body aches and your fever is high. Maybe you have a rash. Maybe you can't stop sweating. But there have also been some really big instances of when viruses have snowballed over the over the population of a whole country or sometimes even a whole continent. Um Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. No, we think about like the common cold and how bad that is, but in the past, there are some pretty horrendous examples of where viruses have really decimated entire populations. Um, So just as recently as in this last century, um, in the 1918 Spanish flu, 500 million people worldwide were killed and smallpox just in the 20th century alone killed between 300 and 500 million people. And smallpox, we have evidence that smallpox has been around for thousands of years. And so it's been plaguing humanity for a
1: very long time. So the fact that smallpox is all but eradicated um, is huge and incredible. I've never met anyone who's ever had smallpox.
0: Yeah, now some of you probably may have been in the generation where you got a smallpox vaccine and it was a pretty righteous. Um, a scar that you got on your, your shoulder. But I mean, the smallpox vaccine is one of the biggest achievements of modern medical science. Um, and in fact, in 1979, they actually stated that they had eradicated smallpox. Um, so huge the only smallpox that exists on the world today is are in freezers and they're debating whether or not to destroy those or not so that's an interesting mm-hmm. discussion for another time
1: though <laughs> it's an interesting ethical conundrum but when you think about the sheer number of the people in this world and the different places that they've had to go to distribute this vaccine it's truly incredible but we got ahead of ourselves talking about how awesome it is that we have as a population have eradicated smallpox with a vaccine but what is a vaccine
0: Yes. So how do we do it? We hear a lot about vaccines, right? There's a lot of controversy, a lot of talk in the media. So how did vaccines come about and like, what are they, just at a very basic biology level? The first vaccine was discovered um, by Edward Jenner in 1770. And he was a physician and he noticed that milkmaids would contract a very mild form of the pox virus, like smallpox, and it was called cowpox that they would contract from the cows that they were working with. Poor
1: milkmaids. I know. What an unfortunate
0: byproduct of work. (laughs) Oh, darn that cowpox. (laughs) (laughs) So they would contract this mild cowpox virus, but he noticed that they would never then contract smallpox, which was a much deadlier virus. Um, And so he got to thinking that, well, maybe... And this is back in the day when we knew very little about the immune system and cells and how biology was working. But he thought that maybe exposure to this more mild form of pox virus, the cowpox, actually helped the body prevent an infection by smallpox. And so what he did to test this theory is he actually would take some sample from an infected person and actually inject that. This is horrible. <laughs> they would actually inject it into a child or someone before they were exposed to smallpox. And what he found is it was successful. That when he gave them cowpox, and they would develop the slight fever due to the cowpox, get a few spots, um, but then they would never then contract smallpox. Essentially, potentially saving their life.
1: Which is a very high-risk way to perform this experiment, but... What an incredible result. I would take a couple of spots of cowpox over wrestling with smallpox any day.
0: Yeah, so even though there there's a lot of documented cases where people are like, oh, no way, you're not giving me cowpox. Like, you're not giving my kid that. But on the flip side of that, there was a whole lot of people who were so grateful that, you know, there was an option now that they could prevent their child from getting smallpox, that they were lining up to get this
1: this brand new vaccine. So Edward Jenner was actually very much ahead of his time, too, because what he was doing with his observations without even realizing it was identifying the differences in the two main arms of the immune system, which is your innate immune system, which essentially just recognizes self versus non-self. These are cells that belong to my human body. They are fine. We will let them be and non-self, which are foreign agents, some bacteria, other things that are non-self that your innate immune system will attack. But what Jenner was doing was harnessing the adaptive immune system. So this is your immune system that you get when you encounter different things and your body builds up a memory against them. When you take in some sort of agent that you can't quite recognize and you get sick, your body mounts an immune response that then leaves memory particles or antibodies, which help you to fight that again when you encounter the agent again. So you might get really sick the first time you come down with a certain bug, but the next time, not as bad. The next time after that, maybe you don't even get sick. So what he did was he recognized that exposure to one thing that was so similar caused you to be immune Mm -hmm. to to this other similar illness, which was super powerful. So he was one of the pioneers of the idea of these two arms of the immune system.
0: Okay, so how do vaccines, as we kind of in modern times understand them, how are they inducing an adaptive immune response? So, kind of like Kelsey said, you have your body can recognize kind of us versus them. And what essentially vaccines are doing is that they're introducing to your body little bits of a virus so that your body's going to recognize that, say, hey, that's not from around here. I'm going to mount a defense against that. I'm going to recognize these little chunks of viruses so that if I ever see them again, we're going to recognize them
1: as an infection and we're going to attack them. Exactly. And these viruses aren't functional. They're pieces of virus or they're dead virus or they're an active virus. So they're not functional. But if you've ever gotten a vaccine and then had maybe a fever or something after that, felt a little nauseous, a little squamous, uh, what's happening is that's not the vaccine itself that's your body's immune response against it is it's your body that's how you i hate to say it's how you know it's working but that's a sign <laughs> that your immune system is doing what it's supposed to do it's recognizing that vaccine is not self and it's building up that adaptive immunity so that the next time you get the vaccine the next time you encounter that virus in the wild you've got the antibodies you're ready and mm-hmm. you won't be you won't be ill with that which is pretty incredible that we've come this far from injecting samples from milkmaids and cows that have cowpox into people, which is probably, if, if nothing more, really, really gross and unsanitary to being able to have modified viruses that can't reproduce to be injected into your body so that you can't get sick. What an advancement.
0: <laughs> and it's even gotten better from just a couple decades ago. I just read that, so the the pieces of the virus that they put into you, they call them antigens, so that's what your antibodies are going to be targeting are these antigens. And it used to be that we had to inject a lot of them to get a response, but now it's much, much lower. They're injecting far less antigens because we know more about how much to deliver, how much do you need for an effective response, and so we're Even though we're getting generally more vaccines nowadays, there's far less bits of viruses going into us to get the effect. So that's kind of a nice improvement.
1: Yeah. And the reason why you get an email or a phone call from your workplace, especially if you work with other people every year reminding you to get your flu vaccine, is because the different bits of antigen that um, are used in vaccines changes a little bit every year because viruses are very unstable on a genetic basis. So most people, um, your genes based from your grandparents to your parents to you are going to be essentially the same. There's not a very high mutation rate in humans and most mammals. Viruses, however, are wildly genetically unstable. The genes in virus A, after it's reproduced a couple times, are going to be markedly different from genes in virus B. So, your flu vaccine from 2013 isn't going to do you a whole lot of good in 2015 because influenza has already moved on from 2013 influenza. It's changed, it's evolved. You might even get sick towards the end of the year even if you've had the 2013 vaccine just because the virus moves so fast. So it's not a scam. They're, it's Essentially, it's a different flu every year, maybe yeah. even twice or three times a year. So any vaccine that you can get will help you to avoid that. Mm. And like you said, it, it changes so
0: quickly. And sometimes they have to forecast ahead what they think the flu is going to do. And that's just a tricky game to play. Oh, yeah. So why do we need Vaccinations.
1: Yeah, why? What's, what's so bad about getting sick with a virus, Jackie? I mean, do we have a defense against being ill with a virus?
0: Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of options. When it comes to treating a viral infection, once you have it, going back to the doctor who's just looking at you saying, sorry, bub, like, you have a cold. I really can't help you. <laughs> it's a bug. Um, So why is that? Why can't we have the antibiotic version for viruses. Um, And I, I believe my understanding is that because viruses again are so small and they utilize so much of their host systems or machinery that anytime we try to drug that or target something, we're really targeting our own systems. There's very little things that are unique to a virus that we can target that actually
1: will stop an infection once it's begun. We can't shoot the virus without shooting ourselves, too, just mm-hmm. as badly. Even if we get maybe 100 million viral particles, that's a drop in the bucket because, A, there's a bunch of them that are already in mm-hmm. cells doing their job anyway, and you're also targeting parts of your own body, which, at this point, if you're sick with a virus, you probably feel pretty rotten to begin with. Plus adding something that's hurting more of your cells isn't really ultimately going to have a healing effect for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the advances that we've made against viral infections have been targeting the viral reproductive cycle to try to get them as they're disassociating and as they're reproducing. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been some really good advances made in targeting uh, HIV, Mm -hmm. uh, which is retrovirus and we won't really get into that but there's different kinds of viruses how they reproduce and how they move how they infect the body is very different but Mm -hmm. the ultimate story is that the best way to treat a virus is to not get one in the first place yep and that's where vaccines come in and really prevention is the
0: best best defense against viral infections
1: so since we just got done talking about vaccines and how they work and how great they are. Uh, next, we're gonna transition to one of the big successes of vaccines in recent history, and that is the Gardasil vaccine, which vaccinates against a against, uh, human papillomavirus, or HPV, as we're going to be calling it from here on out. And this vaccine was developed to prevent HPV-induced cancers and is really, really cool. But what we're going to do in this segment is sort of unpack what this vaccine is, why HPV causes cancer and why it matters, and some of the social issues surrounding why not everybody is flocking to go get their HPV vaccine.
0: And it's particularly interesting because in this part of the country, we have not done our fair share in getting this vaccine.
1: That is very unfortunate and true because the Department of Health and Human Services had set a goal back in 2008 that by the year 2020, um, at least 80% of eligible HPV recipients would be vaccinated and ready to go. And at this point, nowhere in the country is ready for that. But in particular, Kansas has the lowest rate of vaccination in the country. And that's particularly unhappy for both of us because we live in Kansas, and we love it here, and we want this to be a good place that's not being frowned upon by our CDC friends. So we're hoping that we can spread a little bit more awareness and information about HPV and why it's so terrible and Gardasil and why it's so great in this next segment. Well, HPV is a very interesting series of um, illnesses and virus family. So HPV broadly refers to a family of 150 viruses that are all slightly different from each other but share enough similarity to be a part of a family. And... um, Just for fun, people label them all by numbers just to keep track of which is which. But of these 150 HPVs, um, there's about 12 of them that are called high-risk. And we're going to circle back to that. But since there are 150 HPVs, we know this because they are really, really common. Um, It's estimated right now that 80% of all sexually active adults have had HPV at some point in time in their lives. Right, It's a ton of people. Yeah, that's huge. That's like nearly everyone. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of the reason why that number is 80% is because they actually estimate that it's more than 80%, that it's closer to 90 or 100, just because this is so prevalent. And it's something that we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about. Um, sexually, tra- It is a sexually transmitted family of viruses. So it's transmitted through sexual intimacy. And... Um, Most of them don't really do anything. Most HPV viruses just get transferred from one person to another. And they don't really do a whole lot. They hang around for a while. But your body is really, really good at clearing HPV infections. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they actually changed the recommendations for um, women's pap smear screenings from every year to every three years recently because we've recognized that um, HPV infections can be cleared by the body, most of them within two years. So most HPV infections will happen. You won't even know what's happening, and they'll go away, and you'll go about your business, and nothing's ever different. But the problem comes in when something bad does happen.
0: Yeah, so when they're not asymptomatic and just go away on mm-hmm. their own. They're doing something more.
1: <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately more, we talked about it earlier, that... Um, when you get a virus, you will feel pretty rotten most of the time. You might get a fever, feel sweaty, mm-hmm. get a rash. Um, with HPV, you, you usually don't do that. But what it does is while HPV is hijacking those cells to make more viral particles, there, for the high-risk varieties, there is some sort of impact on the other cells around it. And these cells that are constantly dividing and making more virus can get triggered into accidentally causing a tumor when that's not the virus's original purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the main thing with. So now we're talking about tumors, which that's usually characterized by this uncontrolled division. So these viruses are kind of replicating this
1: progression of cancer, like to cause mm-hmm. it to divide and grow. Absolutely. So it's having this viral infection causes this growth and this inflammatory response and so basically the virus is that boost that pushes these tissues into the edge of being tumor of being cancerous Mm -hmm. and that's really bad oh yeah Mm -hmm. so Jackie there's a lot of stigma about HPV caused cancers too um so most people think that HPV causes cervical cancer and nothing else and is that something that you're pretty familiar with hearing oh yeah yeah well, actually, unfortunately, HPV can be carried and can infect men, too. And when it infects men, it's usually asymptomatic like it is with women, but it can also go on to cause HPV-induced cancers with men. And these include penile cancers, anal cancers, and oral pharyngeal cancers, which are cancers in your uh, mouth and throat. And these, these are really rotten cancers. These are not good, and most of them are caused by HPV infections of some sort. Gosh, Yeah, I
0: honestly, up until like this conversation, I really don't think I knew that guys could suffer that much from HPV because the HPV and the connection with yearly screenings for women, and it, I felt like it was kind of always a, a female discussion. Mm-hmm. I didn't even really contemplate the male half of that.
1: Well, a lot of it is, and uh, that's why we're having this conversation, because the CDC is now encouraging men men and boys to receive the HPV vaccine as well. Because men are carriers, men can get the HPV-induced cancers.
0: Yeah, they're just as much at risk for serious health complications, Mm -hmm. just like women. They just don't have necessarily the same screenings, I think, public or not public.
1: Well they're, well, they're not easily accessible because to do a lot of STI testing for men, that involves sticking a probe up the urethra. Oh. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that's how that's how they do it. I'm not sure about HPV, but that's how they do it for regular, uh, mm-hmm. for other, not regular, but, you know, gonorrhea, chlamydia, mm-hmm. HIV, etc. So it's an unpleasant, it's a more unpleasant screen than for, than for women where they just take a little scrape of your cervix and send it off for, for testing. So it's important that people know that men can carry HPV and develop cancers from it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I -hmm. I had no idea. So basically, everyone has HPV. I probably had it. Jackie's probably had it. But this is pretty dire, right? Wrong. (laughs) Gardasil. So a big team of really brilliant scientists came up with an idea to make a vaccine against the nastiest forms of HPV. Mm-hmm. And this vaccine was FDA approved for general use in 2006, and it is a three-dose series of vaccines vaccinations that protects both boys and girls, men and women, between the ages of nine and 26, from the top 12 highest-risk HPV um, HPV sub strains. And these are top 10, top 12 highest risk for both cancer causing and genital warts causing. So it's a two-for-one protection against a sexually transmitted infection that has a lot of awful stigma behind it and a transmitted infection that has a potential to cause cancer. So both of those are really not great. And the opportunity to protect your children or yourself from them is a really, really brilliant modern medical marvel.
0: Oh, yeah. No, and there's... I mean, cancer is such a complicated disease that when you end up with a condition like this cervical cancer and these other types of uh, genital cancers that is so intimately linked with a virus and if we're able to combat the virus before it can even
1: cause cancer that is a big deal Mm -hmm. that is a game changer right there I mean if you would have told someone 50 years ago that we would have had a vaccine against several kinds of cancer they would be beating down the doors to get some of that vaccine going on
0: Right. Yeah, I think the other one, um, the b- other big one is um, hepatitis C. Yeah. So the v- virus, hepatitis C, is linked to um, a liver cancer. Then they, Thankfully, there is a vaccine now
1: mm-hmm. against
0: hepatitis C. So. Yeah,
1: because I remember when Gardasil came out when I was in high school and people would be lining up in the hallways and it was really, really exciting that we had this We had this vaccine that was just something that we had no one had ever heard of before. Besides, Mm -hmm. because the hepatitis C vaccine is so commonplace now. And I mean, this is a fairly significant number of pretty devastating cancers we can vaccinate against. Yeah.
0: And then you never have to worry about them. I mean, it's a cheap vaccine. It's quick. It's I mean, it's just another shot. Mm -hmm. And oh, look, you don't have to worry about cancer
1: of this variety. (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. And so there's so many good things about Gardasil and about protecting against HPV, but people aren't coming out, aren't showing out in droves to do it. So there are some states that have been super successful at getting people out and getting them vaccinated. But mm-hmm. a lot of states, especially states in the middle of the country, have lagged behind. Mm-hmm. And so people actually were really curious about this. So there was a big analysis that went that went on for people who chose who were not up to whose children were not up to date with uh, their regularly scheduled vaccines and from those people they interviewed them as to whether or not their children which were of the appropriate age had the Gardasil vaccine and why they didn't or were not up to date on it
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, so Jackie is there any sort of things that you might speculate why people might not be vaccinating against HPV hmm um I think probably
0: just a lack of information mm-hmm. and just not really understanding what HPV is, you know, do they really need another shot, and then just kind of the stigma that goes around talking about, you know, the talk with your kids and kind of brings
1: in that STD conversation that can get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And Many people said their doctor didn't think it would be useful or advised them against it, but more than 70% of people didn't know that HPV was a thing. So these people hadn't been exposed to what HPV was, which is fair. You're not going to see commercials about HPV on Mm -hmm. TV. And a lot of people actually confused HPV with HIV, which is another very devastating virus, which can cause serious health problems, but not cancer, although they are working on an HIV vaccine. Mm -hmm. But um, so a lot of it is misinformation, both from the patient themselves and from their provider. And a lot of it also comes down to social issues. So if people are aware of HPV, it comes down to that discomfort issue that you Mm -hmm. mentioned is people are uncomfortable with the idea of their children having sex. And I totally get it. It's gross. And no one wants to think about their children having sex, especially when you think about the areas where HPV vaccination is very low, which is in the more conservative and more religious areas of the country. Um, A lot of these people are thinking that or hoping and praying that their children will abstain until marriage, which is totally fair, and it's um, and it's a really good goal for a lot of people. And they think, my child won't need this because they're not going to be promiscuous. If they get this vaccine, then they will have license to have lots of sex. So I think a lot of this comes down to people understanding that this vaccine is a protection. You can have one partner and get a cheap HPV, you can have 10 partners and be miraculous and luck out of not getting HPV. A lot of it's luck, but most of it is bad because most people have HPV of some sort. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be from actual penetrative intercourse. It can be from any sort of um, touching that involves an other, pe- other person's you know, genital regions or mouth or something like that. Mm-hmm. So... Being exposed to HPV is probably going to happen at some point in any adult's life if they plan to have any sort of intimate contact. So we hope that just knowing about this will hopefully demystify a lot of the unhappiness about it. A lot of people from the study didn't know that boys could be carriers of HPV or could receive the Gardasil vaccine. I did not. I am one of them. I am now educated. (laughs) I didn't know until recently either, and I'm a cancer researcher, so I'm just as guilty.
0: Which is great because mm-hmm. I think that with each immu- it, with each vaccine, you are making that person a part of a herd immunity. So I, you're building up that defense against these high-risk strains. And the more that we build up that herd, the more likely mm-hmm. we're going to push these strains out the door. So hopefully no one will ever have to encounter mm-hmm. HPV-induced cervical cancer or... All the other
1: horrible cancers that go with it. We're trying to smallpox HPV. Do what we did to smallpox. Send it out the door. Kick it to the curb. We're gonna make the herd so that people like me, who aren't vaccinated, can be safe in our little bubble of sickness. But (laughs)
0: to clarify, there, so she's not vaccinated, not by choice. (laughs) But yes,
1: by by medical necessity. So I have a medical condition that means that I can't receive vaccinations. And so the herd immunity is something that I take very close to my heart out of very selfish reasons that I don't want to be sick all the time. So the more people are vaccinated against everything, the healthier I am.
0: So you're in that really precious group of like leukemia patients and autoimmune disorder, and newborn babies. (laughs)
1: babies.
0: (laughs) Just as cute. That we are
1: all protecting when we get vaccinated. Just think of me when you get shot. (laughs) Actually, maybe don't think of the babies. (laughs) <laughs> Do it for the babies. Do it for the babies. They're so cute and squishy and they're very defenseless. And so, like, one of the last things I wanted to talk about about uh, the vaccination for Gardasil and why it's been a struggle in parts of the country is, is that um, many of these respondents who had actually gone through with Gardasil were not, their, their, their children were not up to date. So, I mentioned earlier, it's a three dose vaccination schedule. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people had 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 their child received one dose or even two, but they were not up to date on all three. Mm -hmm. This has been a little conversation about HPV and a really incredible innovative vaccine that we have against a cancer-causing family of viruses. Um, There's a lot of social issues around them, and a lot of them are really relevant to our own backyard in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. But we hope we've illustrated that the risk associated
0: with these viruses is just too high to let this opportunity getting this vaccine go by,
1: uh-huh.
0: and it really it's it's a miracle that we have a vaccine that can stop cancer, and that yeah. we I mean it's just a wonderful thing.
1: we're very sensitive to the uncomfortable social situations of if you are in a very conservative household and lifestyle, but at the same time, this is a medical marvel that we have on our hands. And just providing your children with that extra little bit of protection, even if they never need it, is a wonderful luxury to have in this day and age that we live in. Mm -hmm. Um, It's truly incredible to get to watch this evolve. Oh, yeah. And
0: we hope that three shots is a worthy (laughs) trade-off to not having to deal with all of the horrible things that could come down the line.
1: (laughs) Well, it's incredibly unpleasant, too. I mean, if you have an HPV infection with one of the high-risk strains... There's a lot, there's really uncomfortable procedures where they will ablate the abnormal cellular areas on your cervix. I will admit to not knowing a whole lot about how they treat uh, the penile and anal cancers (laughs) in men, but I'm very familiar with the unpleasant things they do to your cervix if there's irregular cellular growth there. And this discomfort and the stress and the agony involved like in the emotional side on if you Mm. have a scare, a brush with one of these high-risk strains is... Something that no one wants, and I don't think any parent would ever want that for their child either.
0: Mm -hmm. I agree.
1: So we hope that this has been illuminating in a way to maybe make you think twice. You know, maybe my kids should get that, even if they're a perfect, pristine angel and they're never having sex until they're 35 and they get married. But, (laughs) like me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay, so now that we've talked about the uh, very uncontroversial idea of vaccinating against sexually transmitted diseases that can cause cancer, as well as what vaccines are and what viruses are, we're going to move on to our final segment, which is our science mythbusters segment. So in this segment, what we're going to do is we are going to um, take some of the common claims that seem a bit outlandish, but you don't really know what's true and what's false. So today we're going to tackle the bite-sized topic of the idea that vaccines cause autism. So Jackie, where did this idea come from that vaccines somehow are related to autism?
0: Yes, so this claim started about 20 years ago and it was made by a report that was published in a journal called The Lancet in 1998 and the authors of this paper so the main author he was Andrew Wakefield who was a physician in the UK and he published a study where he found that in 12 cases of young children he found that they had developed symptoms of autism shortly after receiving the MMR vaccine, so the vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella. So, Jackie, about everybody
1: gets that MMR
0: vaccine, right? Like- yeah, that one's required. That's one of those that you, in order to go to public school, you have to have your MMR
1: vaccine. So, from the surface, this looks pretty scary. Eight out of 12 kids that he evaluated came out with Uh, with autism-like symptoms not too long after receiving this vaccine. Oh, yeah. Well, what's the problem? So, and like you said, it was very scary and the media picked it up and
0: everybody was very nervous that that there was this potential link between this required vaccine and the development of autism. Um, But in the time since that report was published, um, it's come out that this report was complete and utter bogus. I mean, top to bottom, um, not only was the data itself fabricated um, by Andrew Wakefield, he actually changed the data on several important points in the paper, Um, but he was also in it for all the wrong reasons. It was actually a completely a financial gain situation for him.
1: How, how would he possibly gain anything by making this absurd claim that caused a media frenzy over something that's very required for normal health? Yeah, so it
0: came out that um, he the study that he did with these kids um, actually was funded in part by legal fees. So he was actually hired by the courts to study whether or not a link existed between autism and vaccines because there were a group of parents who believed that vaccines had caused their children's um, autism. So he was being funded by the courts to essentially prove that this link existed. But the problem was really that he never disclosed that. He never said that he was receiving funds because of this court case. And that he stood to gain from that, not only through the court case, But he himself was actually developing a brand new
1: measles vaccine. So a direct competitor to the MMR vaccine. You've got to be kidding me. That is the biggest tangle of conflict of interest I've ever heard of. In the scientific community, before we present any sort of research or publish any paper, you have to sign a bunch of forms and make a statement saying that you don't have any conflicts of interest. Absolutely. To disclose. Yeah, because otherwise you're you're biased
0: like you're inherently biased by your own potential to gain from the results that you report and that's exactly what happened here did his vaccine ever go live do you know oh i don't know i should look into it but unfortunately so, well fortunately for the rest of us it took a long time but after a very long investigation in the uk they found that this paper was just completely fabricated and he lost his licensure, he's no longer allowed to practice,
1: and he's just been completely discredited in the scientific field. So, was there anything about this paper that had any sort of redeeming qualities whatsoever? No.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, <it's>, I guess... <laughs> they spelled some
1: words right.
0: I guess it's just a cautionary tale. It's really, it really is tragic, because I think it, it reflects so poorly on the scientific community... Um, And it just created this enormous um, public health scare. And I think the effects of this we're going to be seeing for decades to come. Just because one man made up some data and wanted to make some money.
1: So Jackie, if you were to have a child right now, would you be afraid about the link between vaccines and autism from, this, from the findings of this paper?
0: No, no. There is absolutely no evidence that I have seen in that study that was absolutely false or any of the other studies, major studies that have been done um, looking at links between developmental disorders and vaccines. There's no evidence that I've seen mm-hmm. that suggests that there's a link.
1: There is some really, really great research being done uh, on the genetic basis for autism and contributing factors. But all of the experts seem to agree that vaccination is not one of them.
0: Very true. And we'll be sure to post some of those resources so you can see kind of what's being done in those areas and also the vaccine research um, on our Facebook page. So be sure to
1: check Mm -hmm. that out. The Wakefield paper has redacted in really cool big red lettering right across every single page so you know that it is nonsense. So we'll post that up there so you have a chance to see how much it sucks. And, in fact, we
0: actually um, went on such a tangent, or I went on such a tangent with the Wakefield study that we actually created a separate little segment to completely break down the Wakefield study and talk about exactly what those findings were, how they were fabricated, and kind of the impact of that. And that's in a special
1: other segment we'll be posting separately so jackie what are we going to call that other segment so this is our inaugural recording we don't know if this is the first one we'll post but this is our first recording we've been kicking around some plain puns i have to say i like layover i like the layover too because we got a little stranded talking about this really really nonsensical stuff that he did to make this paper go viral and it's a, it was a really fascinating time i didn't know any of the stuff that jackie brought to the table about the wakefield study but we ended up talking so long that it became kind of
0: its own entity so we figured if you were interested that could be its own special
1: little mini episode our layover so check us out there we now have a facebook group find us at flyover state science and connect with us send us some of your topics for science mythbusters And let us know what you think. We'll post all the supplementary uh, reading and citations for this episode on there as well. Signing off.